Hello, and welcome to this episode of Policy Talks, an iAffairs podcast on policy analysis and international affairs. I'm Michael Aronoff, an associate editor at iAffairs, and today is March 30th, 2022. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Lee Sarti to discuss the origins of the Sino-Russian relationship, its evolution in recent history, and what the Ukraine crisis might mean for that relationship. Lee is a veteran on China-Russia relations who has led a distinguished career with the Canadian government, beginning at the Department of External Affairs in 1993. He now works as an adjunct professor at Carleton University's Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies, and is a senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. Lee, welcome to the show. It's really a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Now, usually when I start, I like to uh, have our guests uh, introduce themselves. So maybe could you provide us with a brief background on what got you interested in studying China-Russia or how you got to where you are today? Sure, uh, Michael. Well, there were a couple of, literally, when it comes to Russia, childhood antecedents. I remember seeing a documentary about the siege of Leningrad when I was about nine or 10 and being fascinated. I had an uncle who studied Russian and I remember looking over his shoulder and thinking the letters looked really cool. Uh, But it was really, I mean, the starting point uh, as an adult was uh, the fact that I was in first year university at U of T uh, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in December of 79. And that unleashed a whole chain of events that resulted in Ronald Reagan being elected president of the United States, which at the time seemed quite dramatic. It seems less so uh, in retrospect now. Uh, But uh, I asked myself the question as this uh, you know, young, barely 20-year-old uh, undergrad, can the Soviet Union really be as evil as Ronald Reagan says it is? And that uh, can be said to be the start of the intellectual journey that led me to uh, do, a, uh, do a master's uh, here at Carleton many years ago, and then a PhD at Columbia, and then, as you mentioned, joined the uh, Department of External Affairs, as it was still known. And I uh, enjoyed a great career where I served in, uh, in Russia twice. I was director for Russia for five years. And uh, I also studied Mandarin and served in China. And the origins of that as well were simply an interest that uh, I initially developed uh, as an undergraduate. And it was the opportunity, uh, a wonderful opportunity that, that um, the department, I believe, still offers to study Mandarin for two years before being posted to China. So that's where the, that's where the China element came in. And, uh, and now uh, with my global affairs uh, years behind me, I'm happily uh, uh, exploring issues of Russia-China relations uh, from the, the very pleasant academic perch at Carleton that you described. Well, it's certainly a fascinating uh, path that you took to get there and definitely a lot to unpack in the China-Russia relationship today with everything going on in Ukraine. But uh, you know, maybe as we start getting into this topic, when we look at China-Russia, we can certainly see they've grown a lot closer over the last 10 years, but they also seem to bring a lot of historical baggage into this relationship. Could you maybe guide us through some of that history between China and Russia to give us a bit more context looking at the relationship today? You know, certainly history is is very important, and uh, I'm mindful of our time constraints, Michael. Uh, but suffice to say, I think the 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 key lesson uh, that history teaches us is that one should neither exaggerate uh, this relationship in terms of its potential 
Uh, but at the same time, neither should one uh, underplay uh, its possibilities, how useful it is to the two sides. And those limitations are, are, are come through when one reflects on the history of the relationship, which has always, it has always waxed and waned uh, and always had its, uh, its share of, of deep difficulties that have alternated with periods of relatively uh, warm relations. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, if we go back to the 19th century, Russia was right there uh, in the forefront of those so-called uh, imperialist powers eager to carve up China. And one of the most infamous of the so-called unequal treaties between China and the outside world was that through which Russia uh, in, uh, in the late 1850s uh, secured for itself, well, I forget the exact figure, but it's basically a huge swath of land north of the Usuri River uh, and the Amur Rivers that uh, incorporates present day Vladivostok and much of the Russian Far East, all secured via an unequal treaty. And this has been, uh, certainly has been an historical bone of contention at key junctures. Uh, when we fast forward really obviously in the 20th century, a period of remarkable, uh, remarkably close relations uh, during the so-called Sino-Soviet alliance. This reflected the fact that in 1949, Mao and the communists came to power in China and uh, established quickly thereafter, uh, the, the communists proclaimed the founding of the People's Republic of China on October 1st, 1949. And then on February 14th, 1950, uh, Mao and uh, Stalin uh, witnessed the signing of a, a, uh, of a bilateral treaty, which underpinned a relationship that was, was spun as a, the, the forefront of the, uh, the then prominent communist bloc in international affairs. But the rot quickly set in and uh, um, uh, differences soon emerged. They were articulated in terms of um, ideological issues that get into many uh, of the arcane aspects of Marxism-Leninism, but that at the end of the day, I would suggest, uh, simply reflected fundamental, uh, fundamentally different national interests. Uh, most importantly, I would think, was uh, Mao Zedong, the Chinese leader's desire to restore, while, while, he, while Mao was a committed Marxist-Leninist and very much a, a communist ideologue, at the same time, he was a very strong Chinese nationalist and sought to restore China's greatness as the, the uh, undisputed leader of international communism. And this fueled a deep dispute with the Soviets that brought the two sides to the brink of war in 1969. Uh, there was a virtual cold war between the two uh, that lasted until the very late 1980s when there was a warming in the context of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's reforms in the Soviet Union. Um, and, uh, and since then, they've waxed and waned. And uh, right now, we're in a period where the two sides uh, share a lot of common interests. But as you mentioned, um, uh, the, the war in, or I believe, the, maybe this was in our conversation before we started recording, uh, uh, but it'll be in the title of the podcast, I think, the sort of where are we uh, in light of what's going on uh, in Ukraine. I think this could, uh, this certainly is uh, a, a unwelcome development uh, from, uh, from the standpoint of this relationship, and uh, we could see it highlight some strains going forward. Very interesting that you described the relationship between China and Russia as having gone, gone through its own sort of mini Cold War. I think that's something that 
we don't normally think of when we think about China-Russia. We always think of the context of the United States and, and the Soviet Union. Uh, so I think that's a really interesting point to note. But then as you, know, you, you mentioned at the end there that this, uh, the invasion of Ukraine is certainly putting some strain on that relationship. And as we're thinking about uh, these historical components, to what extent do you think that uh, Chinese and Russian leaders are keeping this history in mind today uh, or how important is that in shaping the relationship? Mm -hmm. I think it's, um, uh, you know, I, can't, I, I certainly can't speak to uh, uh, the degree to which, uh, you know, Putin, for example, and Xi are, are aware of uh, uh, the bilateral history in uh, in any detail. Certainly, um, officials who brief them probably have a, a deeper understanding and uh, um, but I think what's important is uh, less uh, the degree to which there, there's an understanding of how some of these issues have played out in the past than in the fact that uh, ultimately what, what the history of the relationship teaches us is, and it's, it's just a, a simple truism, and in fact there's, a, there's the famous... Uh, I should have looked it up uh, before we met uh, Michael, because I always forget whether it's whether it's Gladstone or Disraeli, uh, some 19th century British statesman or, or someone else who made the statement that there are, there's in, in international affairs, there's no such thing as enduring friendships, only interests or something like that. And at the end of the day, um, if we want to understand the way China-Russia relations have unfolded over decades, even centuries, and if we want to understand where they are today and where they might be going, uh, the key variable uh, is now, as it always has been, their respective national interests. And um, to what degree uh, do those interests lead them to align and to what degree uh, uh, can they uh, be cause for discord between the two? And I perhaps dwell on that because I think there is a certainly a very strong tendency in our in our modern world, and, and it's easy to slam social media and the way uh, when you live in an environment where analysis is reduced to a, to a tweet. Uh, we tend to favor the simplistic and the sweeping, uh, and one can often encounter, certainly before this crisis uh, began to unfold and, and there, some nuance was introduced, um, strong tendencies, certain writers would always emphasize how close and imposing uh, this authoritarian alliance between Beijing and Moscow uh, uh, is, um, when, uh, when in fact that is simply a simply a simplification, if I can put it that way. And uh, one always has to appreciate that there are multiple dynamics in play and uh, to speak in categorical and sweeping terms uh, rarely advances understanding or, or, under, or uh, advances our own interests. So it's important, that's where, that's where history comes in. Appreciate, again, they've always, they, periods they've been close, periods they've been far apart, it's, it's better to, to reflect a bit on what factors contribute to uh, cooperation in this relationship and what factors uh, contribute to discord. And on that basis, uh, undertake an evaluation of where the relationship is at and where it might be going. Now, I, I really like the quote, there's no such thing as enduring friendships, only interests. And it certainly seems like right now we're at a period of warming relations between uh, China and Russia. 
But what exactly is uh, sort of bringing or holding these two together? They obviously still have uh, their own differences in opinions and visions. There can only be one dominant power in Central Asia, for example, or China, I'm sure, is uh, none too thrilled at China labeling itself as a near Arctic uh, state. Sorry, I meant to say Russia is none too pleased that uh, China is labeling itself as a near Arctic power. So what, what keeps them together right now? Very, uh, very good question. And, and, and those, those uh, you've raised a number of very interesting uh, points of, of potential discord that, that I'd be happy to uh, come back to, Michael. In terms of what draws them together, uh, I think the foremost is the shared geopolitical interest. Again, we're talking classic um, uh, uh, categories and, and considerations that uh, uh, would warm any good realist theorist's heart. Uh, the fact that both of these authoritarian powers uh, see uh, the West in general and the United States in particular uh, in categorically negative terms. That's not uh, an exaggeration. There is a real conviction based on, uh, based on a long history, uh, which one could get into, uh, based both on history and on self-interest, because there's a, um, a quick, as a quick sidebar here, both of these uh, dictators, Putin and Xi, uh, recognize that um, fostering the image of a hostile West is certainly helpful in terms of ensuring their respective uh, legitimacies as the leaders of their country. So there is a certain calculated instrumental quality, I would suggest to these perceptions of the West. Uh, but nevertheless, I'd be quick to add that there, the, these fears are real. This, uh, if you, when one immerses oneself in uh, their speeches and uh, um, the the uh, academic writings on which uh, their advisors it can be presumed to to draw, uh, one gets a picture of a a West that again it's quite alien from the West those of us who live in it <laughs> know, uh, but uh, a a depiction of a West absolutely preoccupied with. Uh, limiting, restricting Russian and or Chinese power. There, there are distinctions uh, in China's negative perceptions of the West from Russia's particular negative perceptions of the West and the issues that drive those. But that core commonality of, of we, uh, the West is against us, the West is a pernicious force, the West would like to overthrow our regimes. All of these are very serious drivers. Um, that contribute hugely to the shared interests, to their shared interest in, in, uh, in uh, working cooperatively uh, on the international scene. I'd say that that's um, cooperation driver number one. Uh, there are also uh, economic complementarities. Uh, um, the fact of um, uh, Russia is a uh, reliable and welcome supplier of uh, oil and gas. Uh, to China uh, and um, has in the past been a good source of, uh, of military technology and, and uh, some reasonably prominent uh, military sales. But third and, and foremost, I think, is the, uh, when we're talking about the contemporary uh, relationship, the driver of cooperation is very much on the leader 
uh, and personal level uh, that um, uh, that there is a um, uh, there is certain certainly a, a degree of mutual admiration. A number of scholars have written on uh, on Xi's particular infatuation that is almost a, a legacy of of uh, of Xi's uh, background as a child of senior uh, Communist Party revolutionaries, and so there's sort of a a uh, the legacy of those that now very distant but period of warm relations with the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union was the uh, uh, was the elder brother uh, that did provide, by the way, in the 1950s, some very significant support to uh, uh, to the People's Republic of China. So there's a certain uh, there's that, and as well, just the simple. Uh, I think um, uh, each admires the other's uh, domestic charisma. Uh, and um, and uh, they love, you know, they make much of the fact that however many you, you see this soundbite, I should keep the number, the, the number of times they've met uh, in summits and uh, and affirm their mutual opposition to the West's latest um, perfidy. Uh, I think this is a very, uh, a very important, has been a very important driver uh, of the relationship. And the question going forward, of course, is, to what degree um, will the dramatic, dramatic, and I, I'm absolutely sure from both Putin's and Xi's perspective, unexpected downturn in East-West relations in general as a result of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, which uh, got underway on February 24th. Um, it remains to be seen uh, the degree to which this will introduce uh, a certain degree of discord uh, in this relationship, sufficient even to to um, to uh, erode uh, this um, this authoritarian bromance at the top. I definitely want to come back to that, uh, as you put it, this authoritarian bromance between Xi and Putin and this uh, relationship that's being really driven from the top. Uh, but before I I go back to that point. Um, I thought it, it's very interesting that you know, both China and Russia are viewing the West as hostile, trying to kind of undermine their systems or challenge their systems at home, which almost seems to suggest they're, they're viewing the West almost in a kind of revisionist way. And yet we ourselves have labeled uh, both China and Russia as uh, revisionist powers. Mm -hmm. And yet the two seem to have very different ideas or visions for uh, where they want the world order to go and the means by which they might go about achieving that. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe walk us through some of these, uh, you know, what I see as pretty crucial differences between the visions of China and Russia and how that might play out in their relationship going forwards? Absolutely, and it's a great uh, a great question, Michael, because it uh, it leads very logically on from the the point. I I certainly I think it is. Um, I stand by the point of that uh, the broad um, the broad shared opposition to the West as an important driver of cooperation. But the next step is, as you flagged, to, to dig a little more deeply and see where um, where. Uh, where, where, where differences might lie in their respective um, perceptions. And uh, basically the, the short answer is, uh, uh, is that Russia's, Russia's vision 
of the future international order is very much a uh, um, a destructive one, uh, I would suggest. It reflects, actually, I would, would back up. I would say that the, the difference in perspectives, the, the way we should characterize each as a revisionist power in its own way, comes down to the dramatic gulf between their respective uh, capabilities and prospects. And so it's from this, this profound power differential that uh, different approaches to a prospective world order uh, emerge and, and form the basis for potential differences between the two powers. For Russia, uh, obviously, uh, well, first of all, China, let's remind ourselves, I believe that the second largest economy on the planet uh, versus Russia, when last I checked uh, its GDP, I think is, is marginally behind Canada's, roughly the equivalent of perhaps the state of New York or the state of California. 11 in GDP at the moment. In GDP, yeah. And um, so as a result of that, um, uh, Putin's toolkit is uh, a lot smaller than, uh, than Xi's. And it seems that, so Putin, yet at the same time, even though his capabilities are, are profoundly uh, um, uh, weaker uh, than Xi Jinping's and China's. His aspirations are those of uh, Putin sees him as Putin and those who support him uh, see Russia as absolutely, uh, ultimately uh, China's and the US's equal that uh, they could foresee. Their ideal vision is a, a kind of a tripolar world in which Russia is, is accepted and respected as one of the top three. Uh, one often sees, maybe not that often these days, but the, one of the um, uh, buzzwords that has emerged in, the, in, 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 um, in Russia's grievance diplomacy that preceded the, the outbreak of war in Ukraine was the, Russia's quest for what some have called a, a Yalta II. And this refers to the, uh, uh, the, the agreement that was reached just before the end of the Second World War between the then still uh, unified, well, apparently unified Grand Alliance that would see the world roughly divided into spheres where, where Russia would get East Europe and uh, the US would get the West of Europe, et cetera. And the Russians would really like, they would love to see that. They would love to have full, full reign uh, in, uh, in what they call the near abroad, uh, the, the, the possibility of Ukraine, let alone Georgia, entering NATO would never even emerge because Russia's uh, preeminence in its so-called sphere of influence would be uh, respected. So this is what, this is Putin's uh, aspiration. And uh, he's using in, in a very violent and, and tragic, uh, um, in tra violently and tragically vivid way, he's using the one means that you know, throughout history has always been Russia's trump card, it's military power. It's always been a country that has lagged technologically behind a more advanced West. Uh, it's certainly lagging in terms of economic growth and prospects behind China. Um, and so uh, in this kind of environment with those kind of uh, aspirations, uh, Putin is reduced to being a, a spoiler and a spoiler who is willing to use military force. Meantime, uh, with China, there is, again, a shared, uh, a shared opposition to or shared um, uh, um, dissatisfaction with the international order as it exists, but 
a, a desire to see it transform, but more from within. There is, there is recognition within China that, that it has benefited from its participation in an open international system. In this, in this respect, uh, there is a recognition that the tremendous growth uh, it has experienced since uh, the reform and opening uh, was launched in the late 1970s uh, has been a result of its increasingly deeper integration with the global community, its, its willingness to join international institutions. And uh, so it is much less of a spoiler uh, than Russia is. And unlike Russia, China does not only have military power as an instrument to uh, achieve its interests, it's got its, its economic weight and its membership in international organizations. And this is a, this is a tool China, China is not shy about using. Um, it's, there's been a, uh, it's been quite uh, noteworthy in a range of, of UN and other bodies, international bodies over the last 10 years, China's uh, sort of China creep, uh, becoming dominant in these in certain committees, pushing and successfully pushing back against language that they view as uh, damaging to Chinese interests, uh, throwing their economic weight around the whole Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, now, China has also, in the same time, uh, overplayed its hand in important ways, this whole wolf warrior diplomacy. This is this phenomenon of, of uh, Chinese uh, diplomats willing to be much more very you know, outspoken and aggressive and, and, and threaten uh, parties openly. There's been quite a backlash there uh, that is not really in China's interest. So this isn't to say that uh, um, because it has uh, much uh, much greater capabilities and a, and a broader toolkit that China's path to a a, uh, a more prominent place in the international order is ne necessarily secured by no means, because it is good. It has proved itself good at shooting itself in the foot, but um, certainly it's uh, uh, this, I guess that th this summarizes the, the important differences in, uh, in Russia and China's uh, approaches to international order, how despite the absolutely paramount shared grievances with and opposition to the West, their respective capabilities and respective uh, aspirations for revising that order are different, uh, are distinct in important ways and could certainly uh, be a source of deeper discord down the road. I really like the way you, you put that. You certainly paint an image of sort of Russia with these great ambitions, but it's these ambitions far outstrip its capabilities, and yet it still views itself as this sort of a, a victim, I suppose, of the post-Cold War order, as compared with a China that is uh, quite possibly the biggest beneficiary of the post-Cold War order, and it seems to have much more of a vested interest in maintaining that stability, which it depends upon in turn for its own uh, economic growth, obviously very important for uh, the Chinese Communist Party's legitimacy back home. Do you see this as potentially putting almost like an expiry date on uh, their friendship, if you will? You know, earlier you mentioned that you know states are brought together by interests. Uh, is this going to be a significant enough divergence if Russia is really a one-dimensional kind of military power? Is uh, I guess an energy exporter, is, as you suggest, and fundamentally is more interested in destroying and creating chaos to create sort of an asymmetrical advantage for itself. That's certainly going to be damaging for China uh, as this continues. Uh, 
where does that leave their relationship? Yeah, I would, uh, great question, Michael. I would, uh, I've got to be honest with you. I, I, uh, I wish that it were so. Uh, in other words, my in this current context in which uh, Putin, uh, Vladimir Putin, has really and truly uh, proved himself and the regime he leads beyond the pale, uh, I would um, I would love to be able to forecast that uh, this would be sufficient to lead the Chinese to say well to. To heck with this! <laughs> we we uh, uh, you know this really is this is a force for an instability that does not serve our interests, and we are going to uh, back away. And and moreover, uh, what I'd like to see even more, we are going to weigh in decisively uh, on uh, in favor of efforts to bring this conflict to a speedy uh, a speedy uh, conclusion as possible. But I don't think, unfortunately, I say this, this is what I would, would like to see happen, and there would be a logic to that happening. Uh, but that, in turn, that, that underplays uh, some of the other factors that, that uh, we were discussing earlier. Uh, that the, uh, it, it underlines you know, the, the complex mix of, of drivers of Chinese policy, uh, that even as uh, they have very good reason to be upset with uh, um, the consequences of what Putin has got up to in Ukraine. This, the, the, the Western solidarity that has emerged clearly, and this isn't just propaganda, this is a fact. Uh, uh, I, don't think, I don't think we in the West ourselves, um, well, I, don't, I think many in the West doubted, we ourselves doubted that we had the capacity to rally uh, in the way uh, that we clearly have in the wake of this just naked aggression on Putin's part. And certainly uh, in Putin's estimations as he was gearing up to uh, undertake this invasion and as he and she, as they no doubt did, were discussing it uh, during their summit in, uh, in Beijing at the beginning of February, uh, the anticipation of continued Western discord was part of a Part of the um, the calculus that uh, that went uh, that went into all this, um, and uh, so that this, uh, but that so that so C does not welcome this, but that still uh, the what one has to still keep in mind the uh, the the perceptions of the West that I was describing earlier that runs so deep, uh, the the perception that that, that China. The China dream uh, cannot be fully realized uh, in a world in which uh, uh, the U.S. and its allies see that they have um, special prerogatives. Uh, these kind of um, so the, the the underlying drivers of opposition to the West that bring uh, Russia, that bring Beijing and, and Moscow uh, together, uh, I think will. Uh, again, sadly, uh, but we'll continue, sadly, from the point of view of a Westerner who would like to see <laughs> this conflict ended quickly, uh, Russia stuck in the doghouse in perpetuity and us all find a way, a constructive way forward. Uh, that seems uh, if, if, if one, one would need to count on strong Chinese support to see that kind of scenario play out, uh, I don't think we can, uh, we can't count on that kind of support going forward uh, because China remains China uh, with its own conception of its interests and its own uh, uh, fears of and concerns about the West. 
uh, etc. So I, I guess my takeaway is that uh, at the moment, China sees more value in its relationship with Russia uh, than it would see from separating itself. And so we're, yeah. we're unlikely to see uh, a breakdown in relations, uh, at least at the moment. And maybe that, that's kind of a nice uh, segue back to uh, a previous point that you had mentioned on the role of Xi and Putin and this personal relationship in bringing these two together and overcoming some of these challenges. Last month on February 4th, the two issued a rather uh, startling, I suppose you might use the word startling, uh, joint statement uh, uh, sort of expressing their shared views of the world and uh, fears about uh, the American encroachment through NATO and through its alliances in the Indo-Pacific and declaring that their friendship has no limits. Do you see this as a major step uh, in the relationship or a worrying sign for the West, or is this more sort of pageantry to try and weave a story about their relationship? Yeah, again, I, I would, um, I would uh, fall back on my, my, my baseline interpretation that I, I shared at the outside, at the outset, uh, Michael, that is neither to let's not overplay this, let's not underplay this. Uh, so that on the one hand, this, this kind of, you use the word pageantry, you know, they, they do, the, these, um, these uh, this is certainly a shared among the shared interests, uh, is these kind of authoritarian regimes, they love, uh, they love big joint statements, they love um, uh, pomp and pageantry and protocol. Uh, and uh, this is, Part of their part of their diplomatic style, and uh, so this was an irresistible uh, opportunity on the eve of the Olympics at a time when uh, the West uh, Western leaders had quite deliberately made clear they were they were going to snub uh, this event. Uh, what better way to demonstrate to the world that well we don't care um, because. Uh, uh, the West might be snubbing us, but our, our good friends, uh, the Russians, are here with us, and they're willing. Uh, they're willing. What's more, to sign off on what is it? Something like a five thousand word uh, joint statement. Um, but so that's the that's the that's the ties that bind. And uh, again, it speaks to the you know I think it was summit number thirty eight or something like that. If you count every phone call and every encounter since uh, she uh, came uh, to power in late uh, in late uh, twenty twelve, but then at the same time that the, the potential for uh, rot, which is putting too strong a word on it, um, is there as well. And uh, a lot of a lot of observers, in, in, including yours truly, certainly, certainly uh, um, uh, would suggest that um, uh, she has had good reason to feel a bit of, uh, of um, uh, remorse at having given such a blank check uh, on February 4th. Again, um, it, it's, it's absolutely clear that Putin had worked himself up into this, this deluded, deluded conception of how this war was going to unfold. And we can only um, speculate that um, he, he sold this bill of goods to see uh, who concurred. Now, I know for a fact that the, the uh, you know, the, uh, 
Um, the diplomacy of the Chinese state does not unfold on the basis of Vladimir Putin's word to see alone. There's a very, very, very strong uh, community of Russianists in, uh, in Chinese policy circles. So I can't believe, uh, and, and as well, it has been quite fascinating. Um, uh, a number of analyses have uh, emerged in the last month from mainland, from mainland China that do uh, quite, uh, quite openly uh, call into question uh, Russia's strength, its capacity in the long haul, and whether um, China should be hitching itself to the star. There was a piece in uh, the, uh, certainly recommend to your listeners, the, uh, the uh, Jamestown Foundation's China Brief. Uh, it's a periodical with uh, you know, short pieces by scholars, and, and the most recent one speculating on, uh, on China-Russia relations uh put it uh sort of quite was was uh china and russia shackled to a corpse <laughs> which is uh putting this thinking most extremely but again we've got to give uh, i at least we've got to give uh uh chinese uh credit for having uh you know, whatever their shared interests with Russia, they're, they've still got eyes with which to see and, and, and can understand that there's some basis for this kind of analysis. So, um, so again, the, let's not, uh, let's not uh, underestimate, you know, the February 4th agreement was, was significant, and this is very much in keeping with uh, the strategies of the two sides. They see it very much as serving their interests but in the spirit of let's not uh, let's not overestimate, there are these sources uh, for for discord and concern. Some small indications that uh, uh, this kind of thinking uh, is underway in China now. Whether it can reach the top guy uh, or whether she, like Putin, apparently is only told what he wants to hear, uh, that uh, could introduce a. a a whole other dimension to this, but uh, but so again, in terms of the May, the, the February Fourth Agreement, yes, very significant. But does this mean uh, best buds from here on in? Absolutely not. No, it seems. Uh, I mean, uh, I thought it somewhat amusing. You referred to it as sort of selling a, a bill of goods to to <laughs> Xi, uh, but it seems like this invasion has really put China in an awkward position. You know, earlier you mentioned that China has this ambition to be a global leader and it's always maintained uh, the principles of sovereignty and non-interference as you know, foundational uh, principles for foreign policy. And yet here we have Russia invading Ukraine, considered uh, acknowledged as a sovereign state by China, part of the BRI, uh, that's the China's Belt and Road Initiative, a major uh, exporter of food to China, which uh, you know, China is the biggest food importer in the world. Uh, and this seems to be a real inconsistency in, in China's foreign policies. What, uh, you know, where does the Ukraine crisis fit into, uh, you know, Chinese foreign policy here? How do they maintain this inconsistency for the sake of the relationship with Russia? And is that really going to be sustainable in the long term? I know you've mentioned that there's a lot of incentives for these two to stick together, but is this going to work long term if this drags on for months or over a year? Yeah, that 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 is the uh, that is the sixty four thousand dollar question, Michael. Is it is it sustainable over the longer term? Um, now, in the in the immediate wake of uh, 
uh, in the first weeks of, of the invasion, uh, it was quite, uh, quite dazzling to witness uh, senior Chinese officials' ability to, uh, to uh, tap dance around these issues and, and with a straight face, uh, uphold positions, which, as you say, are in it, it couldn't be objectively, it couldn't be clearer. One of, as you mentioned in your, your question, one of the strongest principles of Chinese foreign policy is the importance of the sanctity of uh, respect for state sovereignty. But the way they have, at least to date, um, uh, been finessing that is simply by, by emphasizing the US and Western blame for this circumstance. So it's, um, it's uh, very much uh, that that's the, that's the, um, that's the, uh, the spirit in which they, they comment on the situation that sort of helps, helps create a kind of smokescreen to keep from uh, uh, um, uh, acknowledging how uh, hypocritical they're being in terms of this uh, this core interest, the the respect for um, uh, the respect for state sovereignty. Um, so uh, and and it, you know I, I was uh, yeah I remember the uh, the day of the invasion the, uh, uh, the the foreign ministry spokesperson was asked about it and literally sort of a tirade against the West against the US. So it's just mind boggling. So again, on the one hand, this, uh, this, this underlines the, the theme I've been harping on about how, and, and it, it, it's worth me being repetitive about it because I, I think we, it's, it's, a, it's a mistake on the part of the West to, to misjudge exactly how deep, how deeply these, uh, uh, this opposition to the West uh, runs, how, uh, uh, and it's rooted in history. And as much as we feel, how, how can anyone be against democracy and peace? Uh, it would seem uh, if you're a, uh, uh, an official of the Chinese Communist Party or a member of uh, Putin's uh, regime, it's quite easy indeed. So this, uh, this carries one a long way. At the same time, uh, very, as a number of people pointed out, striking that uh, when it came up to a vote uh, in the UN, uh, instead of voting against the resolution, which you know, I believe uh, Russia, Belarus, and I think North Korea, and Cuba probably among others did, China did carefully abstain. So there, there is a little hint of, uh, of um, uh, you know, tap dancing around the issue here. But I, so it, really it's a, um, it's a bit of a uh, it's a bit of a bailout as a response, but it really is the case that only only uh, only time will tell. Uh, but my without necessarily making what I what I wish for uh, blur into what I say will happen. Uh, I can't help but think that the longer things do drag on. Uh, the more reason uh, China will have to be uh, dismayed uh, with this partnership and, um, uh, and that will you know, contribute to perhaps uh, more and more fraying uh, going forward. But again, we, we, we can only, we shall see, time will tell. Now at the risk of uh, perhaps engaging in a bit of wishful thinking myself, uh, you know, as I noted, China is the biggest importer of food in the world, one of the world's biggest energy importers, and Xi Jinping uh, really wants a very stable system. He's hoping to get an unprecedented third term at the end of the year at the, the 20th Party Congress. 
Uh, but this invasion of Ukraine, we've seen oil prices spike. We're seeing food prices rise. If Ukraine cannot plant this spring, it's expected to really spike and create a lot of food shortages. Um, do you think that might be sufficient to get China on board with being a more constructive partner in ending the conflict in Ukraine? Could we see a situation where China starts actually putting some pressure on Russia to stop the conflict or try and de-escalate the situation in Ukraine? Mm -hmm. um, absolutely. Uh, again, we shall have to see. Um, but it's interesting, there's a, um, and I can't take credit for this, this uh, as a colleague of mine pointed out in, a, in a, uh, another Zoom discussion in another context a week or two ago, um, striking, remind ourselves that Biden and she had that two hour conversation. Um, is that about a week ago or two weeks ago? Time, <laughs> time is a blur uh, with all these uh, events going on. But as this um, colleague reminded us, uh, this was against the backdrop of a very difficult preceding uh, few weeks in China-U.S. Uh, relations, uh, starting with the, uh, um, uh, you know, the announcement that, uh, that Biden would boycott uh, uh, the Olympics, and then there was the Summit for Democracy in December, and, uh, and uh, other developments that this colleague mentioned. So that against this backdrop of, of quite frigid relations, for Xi and Biden to be talking, uh, even though if, if memory serves, the readouts were distinctive. I think uh, um, uh, one was more encouraging than the other. I even forget which was which, but my, my point is, uh, I don't, don't think anyone was expecting that at the end of that call, she uh, was going to say, all right, I've, I've, I've seen the, Western's pers the West perspective, uh, I'm inviting Zelensky and Putin to, uh, uh, to Beijing to hammer out a deal. Um, but at least that, that hints at um, one of the currents that's, that's in the air uh, at China's, I think at the end of the day, China, uh, again, because of its interest in stability and it knows um, what, uh, what kind of international context is most conducive to its future growth, et cetera, that, um, a certain dialogue with the U.S. Uh, is not without its advantages. And so that could be a, uh, uh, at the same time, there could be developments that draw it away from Russia. There are other factors that could lead it to see um, the desirability of, of putting its relations with the U.S. on a, uh, on a, uh, a little, uh, on a somewhat less frigid footing. And part of all that could obviously be uh, some sort of role um, in, in mediation going forward, but, but um, a bit early for that yet. And at the same time, uh, at least I have honestly not seen any news today, but there was at least that very tentative uh, bit of um, positive news out of Istanbul yesterday. So Erdogan is, is it would seem is, is playing something of a, uh, a mediator role there, uh, which would get, you know, if, and let's all hope, I mean, our, our, all of our, everyone's bottom line has got to, there's a way has to be found to stop this conflict and stop it soon. Um, and uh, it would seem at least in, in the immediate uh, future, there is not a, a there, there's not an obvious role for a, uh, for, for China to, uh, to take, but if, if, 
this limited progress in Istanbul ends up unraveling and we see a continued protracted war, then some of the considerations that you alluded to in your question could come into a more prominent play. So again, we shall see. Very interesting discussion. Uh, I think we have time for just one more question in our, our final couple minutes. Uh, but you, know, you brought up this dynamic of the US and China uh, and their ability to work together. And uh, within that context, I, I see you know, Russia is not the only authoritarian power with designs on uh, another democracy in the world. Uh, and when I think about the United States and this relationship, uh, Taiwan very naturally comes to mind. What do you see as the implications of the Ukraine crisis for Taiwan, or, or what are some of the lessons that, uh, that we might be able to learn from Ukraine when we're looking to Taiwan? Yeah, that's a very, that's a great, uh, great and fascinating question, uh, Michael. And uh, um, there are many, uh, many others who are more expert on the, uh, I'm not an expert on the Taiwan issue at all, but I'm never, uh, I'm never reluctant to speculate. <laughs> and I think there are, there are a couple of lessons that are pretty clear cut. One doesn't have to be a, a, a specialist on this situation to see that. Um, uh, I think, um First and foremost, I would, again, in my view, uh, um, C should be uh, unhappy with, uh, it, it's precisely because of Taiwan, but among other issues, but certainly Taiwan is, is almost foremost among them, uh, as explaining why C is unhappy that Putin's actions in Ukraine have resulted in a West more unified than ever. So to the degree that um, like Putin's anticipation of a divided West encouraged him to go into Ukraine in the first place, uh, I'm sure that has been to date had been part of Chinese thinking as well. Uh, that, uh, well, I know for a fact, uh, Beijing does not look on the prospect of trying to reunify with Taiwan by force uh, with any sort of equanimity um, still, the notion that being able to play on Western divisions of the U.S.'s weight in the, in the Western alliance is not as strong as it once was, I think was a, was a concept that would uh, lend some comfort to those calculations. And that's now out the window, I think, because of what's happened in Ukraine. So that's, and I think as we're speculating about why I maybe use that term, you know, sticker shock on February 4th, that's another aspect of it, that if I were see. I would be really ticked off at Putin for uh, for uh, for fostering this kind of um, this kind of uh, unity. The other, you know, very obvious implication. I'm certainly not the first to point this out, but I think it's absolutely relevant. Is that it? This this reminds us that war is messy, and that while it's true that I think uh, no one would anticipate that if if Beijing reached the point where it genuinely felt it's time to use force. Um, uh, it would have diluted itself quite to the degree that Putin appears to have with respect to Ukraine. But it's certainly, uh, this has been a reminder in case one were needed that, that the best laid plans very often go awry in the field of battle. And as, as well, again, uh, there's the issue of geography that uh, Putin is facing other, the Russian military is facing all these difficulties against a determined, a smaller but determined would be democratic uh, adversary that 
it's adjacent to, uh, uh, it's geographically, it, it's connected to by land, whereas all of uh, Xi Jinping's and the People's Liberation Army calculations are with respect to uh, an invasion across water. What is it, 100 kilometers, the Taiwan Strait, or 100 miles even? I, I, I honestly don't know, but it's it's some distance over water. And uh, and um, I think just the you know, absolute, how can, how can they not uh, anticipate and be uh, concerned by the evidence of just how, how absolutely uh, determined and courageous the Ukrainian resistance has been, and how can they not uh, realize that Taiwanese uh, resistance would be absolutely comparable? Um, and I would so say one final, this is more, um, uh, you know, in big picture, though, I think it's, it's interesting, and, and I guess this is more a uh, it just a, sort of a, a reflection on, on uh, an important difference between the two situations is that um, I can't say I can describe it as a difference. I'm not sure exactly what it means. You can leave that for a future podcast. But the fact that, um, that this whole, at least in my understanding, and I followed Russian uh, politics and foreign policy for a very long time, and this whole, while relations with Ukraine have, have always been challenging in the post-Cold War world, this, for it to have reached this pitch where actually um, invading Ukraine in order to by force make it part of Russia, this relatively speaking is new. This, this seems, and now um, thoughtful analysts, I've been, I again, recommend to your listeners, um, Timothy Snyder's uh, book, which is a couple of years old now, The Road to Unfreedom. Uh, and that gives a really good account of some of the, um, the, uh, the philosophical origins of Putin's thinking. And they help actually to make this invasion, which I must admit to me seemed absolutely irrational. They make it a little more intelligible. They don't justify it, but they help you see where Putin was coming from. And, but this is definitely a relatively recent phenomenon in the context of Russia, Ukraine, whereas the nature of the Taiwan issue in the politics of the People's Republic of China is distinctive. It has been the, the perceived need to make the homeland whole again by incorporating Taiwan of the People's Republic of China has been part of the declaratory policy of this state since it was founded in October uh, uh, 1949. Now one can then, I mean, if, if one wants to get into history here, there's all sorts of, hey, but what about this, what about that? I mean, uh, remind your listeners that, uh, that Taiwan has not been part of China since uh, uh, China lost it to Japan in the war with Japan in 1895. Um, and, uh, and then once, whereas, but then a, a Russian nationalist would then raise questions about Ukraine status and how contingent it is as a country. And you get into all this uh, sort of uh, internecine and arcane uh, debate. Uh, but it is an important distinction, I think, between the two uh, issues that uh, can inform our thinking going forward. Well, uh, I won't ask you to go into too much of the history on, on Taiwan uh, due to our, our time limitations, but definitely something worth exploring more going forwards. And uh, I like your point that war is messy. And I think particularly when I 
look to China versus Russia, you know, the Chinese military has been essentially untested since 1979 when it invaded Vietnam versus the Russian army, which is arguably much more experienced with its recent engagements in Georgia, Ukraine in 2014 and today or Syria and having all these problems, I think it certainly uh, would give China pause uh, or cause to reevaluate its calculations on the feasibility of this kind of uh, amphibious invasion uh, against a hostile island nation. But with that in mind, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a, a very fascinating uh, and illuminating conversation. Uh, for our listeners, our guest today was Dr. Lee Sarti. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michael.